everybody. Welcome to the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. Lucas Oil is track proven, race ready. You can find a Lucas Oil retailer at lucasoil.com. Corvette and racing are tied together. Corvette has won the biggest sports car races in the world. It is America's sports car. Since 1999, beginning with the C5R, Corvette Racing has won 107 races around the world, including eight class victories at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. 99 of those wins coming here in North America. Corvette Racing became the first team to win Sports Car Racing's Endurance Triple Crown. That, of course, includes the 24 Hours of Daytona, the 12 Hours of Sebring, and the 24 Hours of Le Mans in the same year. Along with 13 team titles, 12 manufacturer and driver championships, and the program manager of Corvette Racing is our guest here today, Doug Feehan. Doug, how are you doing today? Pretty good, Ralph. Very well, thank you. Well, that's an impressive resume of victories you guys have uh, racked up under your leadership. It uh, you know when when I hear those numbers, it's uh, it, it's crazy. That that time has flown by, and uh, to be part of something like that has been truly a a, a blessing. Uh, you know, it uh, we, we tend to look at this thing as always cars and performance and noise and excitement. Uh, at the end of the day, it all comes down to the people, doesn't it? And uh, our, our program has uh, had the dedication and passion of so many different people that uh, have fallen in love with Corvette and and uh, really enjoyed taking it forward. Well, I am uh, one of them. And <laughs> unabashedly, I'm going to put my, as I have in my office here, a Corvette C7R race car model right squarely in front of the camera here because I am a Corvette guy. <laughs> all the way through, as you know, um, yeah. you know, in the C5, which was the first Corvette I ever owned, that car almost never happened. Uh, it, it was close to not becoming a reality and Corvette almost went away as it had more than once in the history of the famed brand. And then the C5R, the race car version of the C5 was finally green lighted, but you, Doug Feehan, you made all of us Corvette fans wait almost two years before you'd let that thing hit the racetrack. How come? Well, it was just in a Cliff Notes version. Um, when the C5 was being designed, okay, uh, by Dave Hill, we knew it was going to be an extraordinary car. We knew it was going to be completely different in its method of construction, its materials. Uh, it was it was going to be revolutionary from a Corvette perspective. Herb Fischel, my boss, said, you know, we, this is a good time for us to really think about getting serious about, about racing the Corvette from a factory perspective. There had never been a full factory program uh, that raced Corvettes. It had always been out the back door, under the radar sort of thing. And uh, so I was excited by that opportunity to put that together. But it, by the same token, what I told him was, is if we're going to take on the full responsibility of having a factory race, pro race program, we've got to be quite certain about what we've got for product and where we're going to compete with it. And so as part of the part of the program uh, direction, uh, we were going to take two years to design and build and test a race car before we ever debuted it, making certain A, that we had product worthy of competition and B, where the heck were we going to race it? Sports car racing at that point in time was uh, kind of in a, you know, in, in disarray, yeah. weren't certain what was going to happen in the U.S., what the sanctioning bodies were going to be, what the race venues were going to be. So that's why we took the two years, took the two years to do it right. And you took Chris Neifel with you. 
as your first ever test driver. What what were those early days like as you were shaking it down, figuring out what you had to play with? Well, you know what? We, we had Chris, and then immediately after signing Chris, we signed Ron Fellows. Uh, we had that prototype that we built there at Pratt & Miller, and uh, we did all this in, in, in secret. Of course, in those days, we didn't have electronic media like we had today. There weren't cell phones. We didn't have the Internet. Uh, so it was much, much easier to conduct those kind of things in, in secret. And, and, and that's what we did. And bringing those two guys aboard, both of whom I had worked with before, uh, it was, it was an exciting time. It truly was an exciting time, uh, because we were doing something that hadn't ever been achieved prior. Was there a moment, uh, at a racetrack when you looked at the stopwatch and went, Oh, we got something here. Yeah. Well, from the first time we had it out and we were going from driver input, keep in mind, we had two guys that had driven everything from Indy cars to NASCARs yeah. to you name it. They'd been in it. Uh, and, and, and when you'd see their faces and you'd listen to the downloads that they were doing with the engineers, when they got out, we knew right away we had a viable program. And at that point you could have actually gone with the coupe model or the hardtop version. And you chose the coupe. Was that due to aerodynamics? It was the, you know, the, the, the little notchback, uh, hard top that was on there, which was, uh, which was a, a Dave Hill, uh, idea, uh, was a, was a lightweighted Corvette. It, the reason we went for that, because it didn't have that big old rear glass in there. So from a track day standpoint, it, it, it was, uh, you know, it had the potential to be a superior product just from its lighter weight. However, where we were going to be racing, places like Daytona and Le Mans, Arrow played a much larger role than their weight because we, the, the car was going to be decontented anyway, and we had a minimum weight we had to subscribe to according to the rules. So uh, definitely the, the choice was made to go with the, with the Fastback model for, for the Arrow consideration. And when you guys finally brought it out to the racetrack, you kind of did like, a, like your favorite restaurant would do. You did a soft opening. You didn't hit all the venues right off the bat. You kind of eased into it that first year. Well, we did. And it was kind of, <laughs> if you can call entering the 24 hours of Daytona. <laughs> a soft, soft launch, yeah. As a, a soft opening. Yeah, it was soft. Um, and, and the reason for that was, was simply budgetary. We would have loved to have won every run every race that year, uh, but we had a, a very strident program set up to to manage our dollars and 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 you know and and a path forward to develop the car. Not not knowing full well that after we had one huge race under our belt, there were going to be a lot of things we wanted to improve upon, and so we wanted to really carefully uh, regulate wh where we competed with the car in, in that in that first year. Did you have to prove yourself then to the executives at GM that you that you had something before they'd really open up the coffers and give you the right number? Well, well, I can tell you this: they bought in right away because the numbers that we had down there for those first two years were probably ten times the the money they had spent on an annual basis in sports car racing. They wow. were huge numbers. Numbers that hadn't hadn't been seen at GM ever before, but they believed in the program. They believed in what we had laid out over that first two years. I mean, John Middlebrook said, quite frankly, quote unquote, "This is the first race program that's ever made any sense to me," and, and that was it, that that was centered on that two year uh, design and development before we went racing with it, and then the extended plan on how we were going to move forward. So we had uh, we had good budget. Um, from the get-go we just managed it well and like i said we had a we had a very clear path that we wanted to follow she had some real pressure too right because if that car wasn't performing on the racetrack it might not have performed in the showroom 
Well, and and obviously that's the risk you take. But at the end of the day, we knew what the what the what the streetcar was going to be. We knew how good that was going to be, and uh, we didn't think. Um, you know, like I said, you're always taking a risk, no risk, no gain, but, but the risks we were taking were quite frankly minimal. I mean, the car was that good, but yes. And, and yes, we had to perform and, and that's the way it is at any factory program. If you don't yield results, you're not going to be around very long. 2000 was a year really when things really kind of took off for the program. And that's when uh, millennium yellow first got picked as a color you'd, you'd seen, the car debuted in the silver and black good wrench color scheme and 2000 is when we see the yellow that became so popular with the car but it was called millennium yellow then how did that come about that yellow was the color well you know i i wasn't a big fan from a competitive standpoint of the of the silver and black car it was a tremendously effective show car looked beautiful on the stands properly lit it was a cool design yeah uh, that was a clay dean john Caffaro effort and it was gorgeous but as i explained to him it becomes racetrack camouflage uh-huh. all right yeah it blends it blends right in on the high banks of daytona couple of things there number one your competition can't pick you out on the racetrack which can be a a, a, a safety and performance issue and number two Every photograph looked like a black and white photograph. So the media wasn't going to pick it up. They weren't necessarily going to put it on covers of magazines. It wasn't going to appear in full page lead-ins to articles that they had written. And it, and it you know, the, it, it just wasn't a, a, a great marketing approach from an on-track perspective. After the first year, management came to the conclusion that that was correct, that maybe we need to do something different. And I had, uh, I had just finished a previous program, which was the Oldsmobile WFC program with Danka, where we had an intrepid, yep. where we had uh, uh, white, white, blue, and yellow cars. And, and, and we knew that that yellow was just a standout color. And uh, so from a marketing perspective, we thought that would make the most sense. And we, I think the first car was a, was a yellow white with a black stripe separating it. And then we went ahead and, and came up with, uh, with the all yellow cars. And uh, it, it, it proved to be pretty much iconic as it developed through the years. Sure did. There was the blue with the white and red accents that you did for the 50th <laughs> anniversary. And then now yeah. uh, Velocity Yellow became uh, the trademark name uh, that everybody, I think, really knows the Corvette uh, for running. 2000 was also uh, brought a bigger engine for the car. And that was the return of Corvette to Le Mans. But you had to do it alongside the Cadillacs, too, uh, in the LMP program. So that must have been a challenge. Well, well you know, the, the, the Cadillac thing operated as a, as a separate entity. Interestingly enough, in those days, I had responsibilities for all the road race programs. And uh, I, 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 I was charged with... For lack of a better term, putting that together with John Smith, who was the general manager at Cadillac in that time, f- finding a place to race and what they wanted to do, but they had their own, they had their own, their own world. So it it, it was no burden on on the Corvette, none none whatsoever. And uh, the bigger engine w- was a result of uh, competing against the Viper, who was running an eight liter engine at that time, which was just a massively powerful motor. Yeah. I mean, that thing could run all day long at fifty two hundred RPM. I I, I think. The, the guy who ran the dyno there at Chrysler t- told me that in three years of development, they only had one engine and they'd never rebuilt it that wow. um, <laughs> they'd used on the dyno. So it had durability and reliability as well as a bunch of power and massive amounts of torque. 
And so the concept was that we were going to go ahead and develop a large displacement small block motor. And, and that's what we did. We did that first in the race car, and then that became the Z06. Yeah, and bringing Corvette back to Le Mans uh, was a big thing to try to win over the French race fans and race fans from around the world, not just America. And you had a little trick up your sleeve when you guys unveiled the cars. Tell, tell us a little bit about what you guys did taking those photos. Well, you know, it was it was interesting because we had done the research. Well, our, our marketing manager at that time was a guy by the name of Gary Claudio, a br- brilliant guy, a, a great marketer, and uh, and and we used to have a lot of very candid and forthright meetings, and 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 we had come to the determination that aside from the pure competition aspect of it, that we had a huge mountain to climb. And that was the perception, not only of, of, uh, Corvette, but of Americans competing at Le Mans. And, uh, and that perception wasn't necessarily a positive one. Uh, in France, the car had a reputation of, of being, uh, driven by pimps, prostitutes, and drug dealers. That's who owned the Corvettes over there. And that was a problem. So Gary said, we need to come up with something unique. I said, well, have at it. So when we went over, you'd go through scrutineering, which is actually taking place downtown Lamar. They don't do it at the racetrack. The cars are transported to downtown. All the people who live in Lamar come out. It's a huge event. I mean, yeah. if you've not witnessed it, it's it's totally amazing. It's like nothing else you've ever seen in motorsport. So we moved through this uh, maze of, of, of technical stations where they're looking at the car, making sure they're complying with the rules. When you get all done, they have an area set aside and the cars are parked there. The teams are positioned behind the cars and then the official photograph for the program is taken very traditional very ceremonial uh, f- uh for, for Le Mans. that's the french culture so when we got uh, all staged and ready to go we stood there we had our photograph taken and then they were issuing us off go 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 they said out of the way out of the way i said no 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 <laughs> one minute and what gary had done he had gotten each of us a beret and a fake mustache and we had it stuck in the back of our pants so we took off we were there in cowboy hats <laughs> All right. Because the French love cowboys. So that was the first thing we had done. So we took off the cowboy hats. We put on the berets and the fake mustaches and stood there for photographs. I can tell you two things occurred. Number one, the French crowd broke out in applause. They were already loving us for wearing the cowboy hats on that first day. But the, the scaffolding from which all the ph- photographers were taking their photographs was stationed above. It's, it's elevated about 20 feet in the air. It was shaking so hard from them laughing. <laughs> they had to they had to wait till they stopped laughing to take the photograph with the berets and the mustache that appeared above the fold in the regional newspaper the next day. We knew right then that we had taken the first step forward to endearing ourselves and the Corvette brand to the French people. You had your first victory at Le Mans. You hadn't even turned to wheel in anger yet. Yeah. Incredible. It was cool. We're going to be right back with more of the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. Our guest today, of course, Doug Feehan, who runs the Corvette racing program you know lucas oil has had a lot of success on the racetrack too just like corvette but you can have a lot of success in your street car with it as well just like this the lucas oil heavy duty oil stabilizer you got to keep that engine alive use the lucas oil heavy duty oil stabilizer we'll be right back with more after that Lucas Complete Engine Treatment is a multifunctional cleaner plus lubricant from the labs at Lucas Oil Products. 
It's designed for use in both engine oil and fuel systems. It also cleans and lubricates the entire gas or diesel fuel system from the tank to injectors. It contains special Lucas additives that cause the fuel to burn thoroughly and helps increase your miles per gallon. Expect longer engine life, longer oil life, cleaner exhaust, and less fuel consumption. Lucas Oil Complete Engine Treatment. It works. We might be a tick over 80 years old, but we have no thoughts on slowing down, and who said reinventing yourself isn't fun? The all-new Speedsport.com is here. New layout, new images, new video, and all the late-breaking news you expect from America's Motorsports Authority. We know you love sprints, midgets, late models, and everything else that gets dirty. Plus, we've got all your pavement series covered, too. The all-new Speedsport.com. You know, for guys who really love racing. Welcome back to the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil. This right here is National Auto Racing News, appeared in the Bergen Herald. This is what Speedsport first appeared at back in 1934. That's a copy of it right there. And over those 85 years that we've been in existence, I can tell you Corvette Corvette Racing have appeared on the cover numerous times as they've claimed 107 victories around the world, the C5, the C6, and the C7, and soon, hopefully, the C8 as well. We'll get to talking about that car here in a minute. We just wrapped up a little bit about the C5. Doug, when you began your career with Corvette Racing, the C6 and the C6R were pretty much an evolution of the C5, weren't they? Yeah, they were. And uh, part of the program, as, as we instituted it, was to draw a correlation between the production car and the race car to the point where we actually embedded uh, a Corvette engineer into the race team. First one was uh, Ken Brown, uh, who came aboard. He was there for a couple of years. Dave Hill wanted to wanted to uh, uh, expose his engineering people to the world of racing, to, to look at how we operated, things we did, the can-do attitude, you know, operating on compressed time frames. He thought that had value in, in actual production, and, and, and we did that. And and, and when we got ready, the C5 we inherited, okay? Yeah. We, we didn't have any input into its initial design. The C6, on the other hand, um, Dave knew that there was going to be a next generation, and he came to the race team and said, look, what can we do in the road car to give you guys a better shot at building a race car? And uh, we gave, I gave him th- three parameters. Number one was we had to lose the flip-up headlights. Which was, I mean, caused an apoplectic reaction among our fans because the <laughs> yeah. flip-up headlights were a big deal. Yeah. but they were terrible aero at Le Mans and Daytona. Sure, I said, and and uh, and and number two, I said, I need a big single opening in the front of the car. If you recall, the C5 had those little cat whisker openings in the front, yep. and it took in a lot of air underneath that nose. I said, we need a single opening so I can get combustion air and brake cooling air and engine cooling air. Uh, and I said, if we've got room with the government regulations, I need we need to tip the windshield back a little bit and uh david was a firm believer in what we were doing a very a huge advocate really was understanding how how this thing how this racing thing was way more than a checkered flag and a trophy how it was motivating his engineering personnel he gave us all three of those things how long had you been working on the c6r as a race car before any of us knew it was even there or that it was coming to the racetrack uh and and the c6 world that was about one year uh, we had we had all the we had, we had built a we had built a car which was an evolution of the C5. So it wasn't it wasn't a, a monumental task. It was basically um, aero differences. Uh, we we ran one of those for about a year before we actually debuted. 
With the C5, of course, you were dealing, as you mentioned, the Viper was probably the number one rival at the time, uh, not just on the racetrack, but in the showroom as well. With the C6, it became Aston Martin. Uh, those guys in green, they were, they were the ones that were giving you fits. Well, we had in between there, we had Ferrari too. Yeah. If, if, if you recall. Yeah, the ProDrive yeah, and, that, and that, that, that was ProDrive out of England. Uh, had come over with a Ferrari and uh, we battled them for an entire year. I think we ended up winning that championship that year by one point. It was a dog fight. And then, and then Aston Martin was there for a couple of years and then we battled them hard. But by the way, Porsche's there all the time as well in the background running too. So it was, um, there were some, some, some huge battles, monumental battles, not only stateside, but at Le Mans as well. Yeah, it's it's always been a, a good mixture. Even today, of course, uh, with the C7, BMW's in there. Porsche, Ferrari is back and running mm-hmm. strong as well. That's got to be one of the keys for success for Corvette on the sales side is beating that competition straight up. So are you happy with the way the rules and regulations are going today? Well, here's 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 how this has evolved. In the old days, you only had a couple of rules. All right, I mean, your car had to be, you know, maintain the same profile, had a had a weigh a minimum amount, and depending on what it weighed, it was the gave you what your engine displacement was. You know, if you were naturally aspirated or if you were turbocharged, and it was just a you know just a linear scale. It's gotten far more detailed now because we have such a variety of cars that are racing. I mean, you've got you know you had at one point point time Porsche being rear engine. Now they're mid engine. You had Ferrari, you had naturally aspirated, you had boosted motors, you had uh, V sixes, you had V eights, you had opposed boxer sixes. I mean, you had a bunch of different power plants, a bunch of different engine locations, front engine, mid engine, rear engine, as I said. Um, and, and so as, as, as the cars evolved, so did the rules. And, and we had to develop a, a, a set of rules now that we call BOP, which goes a long way to help uh, equalize the cars. When you think about this, in the old days, turbocharged cars running against naturally aspirated cars could never really be equalized. They just they just couldn't. The the motors behaved differently at different racetracks, and it was a it was a problem. Um, but if with, in today's world with the technology where you can control a boosted motor at every hundred RPM increment. You can you can you can manipulate a turbo motor to behave and create a horsepower curve essentially exactly as a naturally aspirated curve. And so when when you look at, at what we've tried to achieve and we have achieved at times, um, you know, you take eight or ten cars in a class and and they're and they're qualifying within two tenths of a second of each other on a four and a half mile racetrack. Yeah. You know, that's a level of parity that's uh, from a scientific standpoint is pretty hard to achieve. So. BOP is always going to be a work in progress. Um, we were we were great in 2018, and I say we because the manufacturers work with the sanctioning body as a unit to try and develop a, an equitable BOP system, which is no small task. Uh, the 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 results in 2018 were better than they were in 2019, but we had more science in 2019. But we're meeting right now. We'll continue to meet through the off season uh, to bring 2020 back into a uh, have have a little closer racing going on. We all recognize it's an, a necessary evil, and uh, as I, as I explain it in, in our meetings and to people who ask, regardless whether you're a Ferrari or a Porsche or a Corvette or a Ford or a BMW, we're all in the same boat here. We just have a different paddle 
And and the idea is to move that boat forward. And we need each other to survive and, and have a thriving business and entertainment uh, uh, program that we can take forward to our fans. So um, is it tough sometimes? Yeah, it is. But uh, but that's what you got to do to take the show forward. The C7 and then the C7R race version, of course, was a complete brand new sheet of paper. Uh, how long had you been working on that before we knew it was coming? Well, I, I, again, um, you know, because because it was similar in its format. In other words, from a, from the a C7, C6 to C7 in production side, I, they don't think they had a common part. Okay, yeah. it was a brand new car. The race car was brand new, but because it still had front engine configuration, you know, wheelbase remotely the same. Again, it was an an aero thing, and so it was about another. It was about a one year program as well, because again, we remember we learned with C five, we learned with C six. By the time we got to C seven, we had a very good idea where we were going to go and what we were going to do. So it was it was it was just during the course of that of that the last year of, the, of racing the C six, we were testing C seven. The C seven R, I I think, is uh, arguably maybe the most beautiful of the three. Um, although. I wouldn't turn any of them down as an owner. Um, but I just thought that C7R was just tremendous in its look. Um, along the way, while racing that car, you guys must have felt like you'd maxed out everything you could do with a front engine version of a Corvette. At what point in time did you start thinking, guys, we, we can't do this again. We've got to change the configuration. Well, here's interestingly enough, because that would be that would be the the common sense deduction. All right. Yeah. However, with the balance of performance in place, in theory, kind of doesn't matter what you bring. Because they're going to they're going to if you're going too fast, they're going to throttle you back. If you're not going fast enough, they're going to give you enough to be competitive. So there wasn't a huge amount of pressure from a racing perspective to move to mid-engine, from a racing perspective. However, from a road car and performance perspective, that's exactly what had taken place. Um, if you talk to Tad, he'll tell you, look, we maxed out front engine. We got it as good as we could get it with that platform. And, and I think that was uh, uh, exemplified. If you look at, say, take a 060 a time between the ZR1 and the Z06, all right? It's, you know, hundreds of a second. Yeah, they're that close. Now, top speed is going to be different, of course. Um, and but when you look at the track times and the performance times, there's not and just an infinitesimally small improvement of ZR1 over Z06, and and that's simply because that platform had been maxed. So from a road car's perspective, it was important to move to a mid-engine configuration. Now, from a racing perspective, believe me, we weren't upset by that. Because, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because we knew it was going to provide us with some distinct advantages and some room to grow and, and, and you know, a, 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 a several different avenues to go forward to try and improve performance and drivability. Um, often cases, we always think of racing in speed, and that obviously is the, is the ultimate measure. But the reality of it is if you can give a car that's easier for a guy to drive, he can put it in places that he normally couldn't put in another car. That makes a huge difference when you're on the track racing. And uh, I think the mid-engine platform um, is is proving uh, proving that to be true. I know, um, obviously, you even talked about how crazy Corvette fans got over you taking away the pop-up headlights. Um, yeah. As a Corvette guy yourself, um, are you sad to see the front engine go away? 
Well, you know, I've got a C7 sitting in my garage right now. And 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 to your point, it's to me, not that there's anything wrong with the other designs, but there's there's been iconic designs in the world of automotive that never seem to get old. An E-type Jaguar is still wildly sexy and contemporary to me. Yeah. Yeah, a, a 63 Corvette will never look old. Right. And I think with C7, to me, it has that same impact. That car is, to me, is never going to look dated. I mean, you can look at a C5 and a C6 and they're cool cars, but they but they look like from the era that they came. Yeah, I don't. I, I, C7 does not have that. When you look at, at the side profile of the car the windows the way the window frames move and, and and move back into the body the lines that the designers have kind of clandestinely installed in it that are just like the 63 if you look carefully yeah. they're there that was their influence that was their inspiration i think the c7 is going to be timeless in its design so you know, as as I'm looking, I have a new car on order. By the way, I have a C8 on order, all right, because I think that because 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 it's it's just that good a car. But I'm going to be sad to see my C7 go. I don't have a big enough garage to keep them all, but I'm going to be sad to see it because it is such a beautifully designed automobile. I I, I think it's one of the the greatest Corvette designs of all time. What has happened to the old C5s, C6s, and now the C7Rs? Where where did they go? I'm sure GM has kept some, but do they have all of them? GM has only kept one, all right? And that was chassis number two. All the rest, aside from the cars we just finished with, but but all, all the rest are in hands of collectors and guys who are still racing them throughout Europe. That's interesting. It, yeah, and and it's a it's a tight knit community. I forget what the numbers are. I should know how many cars we've built, but it's not a lot of cars. Yeah, yeah, but they're you know? all out there. Oh, they're there, absolutely. We know where everyone is, and everyone knows where we are. So we we stay in constant contact with one another. We're always doing stuff. I mean, Bruce Meyer has one, uh, a Lamar winning car that he has out in his own private museum, and there's a couple other guys. We've got a guy lined up that's in all. all well, let me just say that the two cars we just <laughs> finished racing, yeah. there's a line of people who are very interested in this. So I'm at the back end of that line is what you're telling me. Uh, pretty far down that food chain. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah well, I got a better shot be at this. I got a better I'd, shot I'd, at this. I'd love CA, to have right? one. Yeah. I bet. Yeah, it's going to be tough but, getting but, this but, CA. My wallet's not near big enough. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. We're going to come back and we're going to talk with Doug Feehan about the C8 and the transition to the mid-engine generation of Corvette. There is less than one hundredth of an inch of motor oil protecting your car's engine. Friction and heat causes engine oil to experience thermal breakdown, weakening its ability to protect the engine and its parts. Lucas Heavy Duty Oil Stabilizer is specially formulated to resist thermal breakdown, protect vital engine parts, and extend the life of your engine. It also stops smoking, knocking, and oil consumption in worn engines. Lucas Heavy Duty Oil Stabilizer. Keep that engine alive. I can work in 14 different states. I have world-class facilities. I get to work in an air-conditioned and heated shop. I have great paid health care. I get a tool allowance. There's an educational allowance as well. Yeah, career growth opportunities are amazing. This is a great career opportunity for the ladies as well. I get to work for a great company and brand in Hendrick. 
With a variety of dealerships nationwide, you can become part of a great team. Apply today at workinhendrick.com. Welcome back to the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil. Lucas Oil, of course, track-proven, race-ready. You can find a Lucas Oil retailer at lucasoil.com. Now at speedsport.com, Doug Feehan, you can find cool T-shirts that say Speedsport, like this one I'm wearing here with the old Indy car on it. This would have been, uh, I think, Bobby Unser back in the 70s. Were you a big IndyCar fan back then? Oh, absolutely. Are yeah, you right? kidding me? I can remember. It's funny you should say this, because obviously it's a Memorial Day event. And my dad and my grandfather were huge racing fans. I can remember doing yard work with my dad uh, on Memorial Day with with extension cord and a radio, listening to Paul Page doing the Indy 500 broadcast. Sure. Uh, I, I look forward to that, whether we were painting the garage or weeding or whatever we were doing, we were out there together listening to that race on the radio. It was, uh, yes, I was a huge fan. Great, great memories for many of us. Corvette has always danced around the idea of a mid-engine car going back all the way to serve one serve standing for Chevrolet engineering research vehicle. Uh, Zora decided maybe there was something here with this uh, mid-engine design how many conversations had been had that you can remember from the C5-6 through the 7 before you guys actually said, you know what, now's the time? You know, it wasn't, it, it would be hard, it would be hard to put a number on it. It was always in the back of our minds. We always talked about it, you know, um, but it wasn't, it, there was no, there was no hard court press, full court press from a racing perspective to get it done. Um, it became apparent when, when I, I think to the, to, to Tadge's group, uh, when they were doing C7 design and, 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 and looking at building cars that had 650 and 750 horsepower, um, that, uh, we had, we had, uh, we had, we had reached a, a point that was going to require a move forward. And when you look at what the competition was doing, um, from the standpoint of how you got to be a supercar, quote unquote, it, it, it just became clear that that was probably the best path to take. And, and I think management recognized that as well. And it was just kind of a confluence of things. It wasn't a, it wasn't somebody just waking up a morning and said, okay, I'm going and put my fist down and we're going to build a mid engine car. That kind of, you know, everybody, everybody had the same thought process at exactly the same time. We all had the epiphany in the, in the, in the, in the same moment. Um, it was it was interesting. It was interesting to be part of that because it was quite exciting, and and it was you know one of those things where it kind of laid back in there and had been bubbling up, and it it just it just became apparent that that's that's what we needed to do. It wasn't it wasn't that quite frankly it wasn't that big a deal. Yeah, and well, it was, because because it because it just was the obvious choice. Yeah, it's a huge deal to Corvette fans though. Are you concerned about that? I mean, it's a huge deal, good and bad. I guess right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, look at it this way, and then the pop-up headlights, or the or the furor over the 
Tail lights. Tail lights, okay? Yeah. I'm, I'm never buying another Corvette. <laughs> I'm gonna, gah, 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 gah. Well, guess what? I think I think in in our last major full year of production was 2016, 2017, where it was uninterrupted. And I think we sold 40,682 Corvettes. So, um, yeah, are there, are there going to be those purists? who believe the Corvette needs to be front engine. Of course there are. And that's cool. That's a good thing. But there's also a whole bunch of people out there saying, well, Corvettes turned the corner. You know, they've taken a giant leap into the 21st century and uh, they're going to be attracted to Corvettes because we've done it. That's always been the case whenever we've made any change. Um, I I understand both sides of it. I I get the purists. I understand where they're coming from and I respect that. But the reality of, and I was one of those guys, but like I said, I got my order in. Because I know how good the new car is going to be. Yeah. How good is it going to be as a race car? I mean, obviously, you guys have been playing with this thing. We know it's going to be a great street car, uh, and and it's going to do amazing things there, and there's more models of it yet to come, I'm sure. But how about as a race car? What what gets you excited in the morning now? Well, a a couple of different things. Obviously, um, with with the engine at the – rear of the car you have now have a, a weight bias to the rear which provides a distinct advantage in traction all right anytime you start with a clean sheet of paper uh, you can look at, at developing something that you can focus on light weighting in other words with materials and material designs and the implementation of those materials and different processes that we have now to produce parts whether it's stereolithography um the lighter you can build the car everybody says well the car has a minimum weight well yes it does but the lighter you can build the base product then allows you to ballast and weight the car differently at different racetracks um, which is a huge performance advantage and and we've moved away from uh, the transverse spring car, all right, into into a, from a road car perspective, into a uh, independence four wheel independent suspension with coilover shock absorbers, which we ran in the race car, but the rules required those to be located uh, within a twenty centimeter radius of the production location. Well, now we've what we've kind of done is looked at all the lessons we've learned at C seven and provided all that suspension geometry data to the production guys. And then we've optimized that. So we're going to have a car, A, that's going to be lighter, all right, which gives us more more opportunity to, to place weight where we need it. Aerodynamically, it was a clean sheet of paper. And we're going to be have huge improvements in its aerodynamic efficiencies and in the suspension layout, not just necessarily how the car handles and brakes, but you got to think about what we might be able to dial in for tire wear as well. Can we get better, better, better tire wear, better tire life uh, out of this new car than we could have out of the old car? So those are the things we're looking forward to exploring. And there's no waiting on this program like you did with the C5. You guys are coming out ready to go at Daytona, and you're running the full season, including Le Mans. Um, yeah. Are you yes. that confident? Well, here's what we're confident about. We're confident that we've done as good a job as we know how to do. Now, having said that, there's still going to be a steep learning curve. You know, we've got to write the book on this car, and there's not page one written in, in, in competition as yet. And Daytona will be uh, will be the first chapter in that book. 
Um, I suspect that there's going to be a relatively steep learning curve with this. We've got years and years of experience that we've poured into developing every component on this car. But that's not to say that when you actually apply that in a racing environment, that there aren't going to be some things that need improvement. And we're prepared to do that. Um, but yes, we're, we're, we're confident to the point at some point in time, you've got to go race it. And we're at that point. You, you mentioned when you were talking about the C5 and testing with Chris and Ron, how it was easier to keep it all secret because you didn't have social media and everybody running around and drones and all that, like we do now. How did you guys keep this so quiet? <laughs> well, we had a, anybody who has an internet uh, understands that there's a little bit of it that was out there. And we knew that it was going to be um, a relative impossibility to keep it 100% quiet. But uh, I, I can tell you that we've had extensive testing with the car that was undetected uh, by the motoring world. And um, you, you do that with. Uh, paying attention with lessons learned and getting full cooperation from the facilities at which you've uh, decided to go testing. So uh, it, it wasn't easy, but, but like I said, we had become pretty good students by what we had done in the past. Uh, and it worked out, I think, extremely well. Yeah. You're pretty sneaky, Doug Fian. I got to tell you. Uh, <laughs> so you look, you well, take, let me put it this way. There was enough, there was enough out there that piqued interest. Oh yeah. Yeah. You guys had me searching the internet pretty regularly. I can tell you that. Um, yeah. You're going to take this thing back to Lamar. And when you do so, you know, Corvette, the front engine Corvette, that big thundering American V8 is that sound is one of the reasons why people flock to the Sarth to hear it. Um, this new car is going to make a different sound. It's a V8, but it's a different engine configuration. Um, what are we going to hear? And is it going to be just as invigorating? Well, it, it, you know, now we're talking about personal preference. What's your favorite color, right? Not everybody's favorite color is red. Yeah. Uh, but the, the sound that the Corvette made was unmistakable, and, and it had endeared itself not only to our customers here, but to fans all over the world. And, and as we talk about Le Mans, yes, indeed, uh, there, was, there, was, there was no mistaking when the Corvette was on the racetrack there. Now, although we'll still be running a five-and-a-half-liter uh, naturally aspirated V8 engine uh, it uses a flat plane crank, um, which emits a slightly different sound. It, it, I think this engine revs a little faster. Um, it'll probably be running a few hundred more RPMs at top end. Um, and because of the flat plane crank, it emits a different tone. It's, it's going to be different than than what we're used to but it will still be distinctive i think it will still be uh no you 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 won't have any trouble determining that it is in fact a corvette going by it just won't be the same sound that we've had in the past okay i know uh you probably have something in store for the french fans and the fans from all over the world when they get there like you did when you brought the c5 are you bringing the berets back <laughs> Until you mentioned it right now, I hadn't thought of that, but that might not be a bad way to do to, to start our 21st year there. I think last year was our 20th consecutive year yep. at Le Mans, which, 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 by the way, for same team, same manufacturer, same mark, no team in the history of Le Mans has accomplished that. And I, and I seriously doubt whether any team will in the future. We're quite proud of that. So as we begin our 21st year, having something special as scrutineering, uh, I'm, I'm 
confident we'll come up with with something unique that will be appreciated by all our fans. You guys could be all stand there reading speed sports with Corvettes on the cover. I could make that happen if you want. <laughs> just just an idea. Just saying. Just just saying. It's just out saying. there. You it's know, out there. It's certainly certainly worth consideration. Might help me get to a CA quicker. Um, <laughs> Dale Earnhardt Sr. and Jr. both race for you. Were we going to yep. see? Were we going to see Dale Sr. at Le Mans in a Corvette? No, no question. Um, sh- sh- short of s- signature on the dotted line, um, it was it was it was in his mind. He was there. He was going to do that. No question. Yeah, boy, we missed out on that opportunity. Didn't we? Yes, the other we one, did. the other one, I've always wanted to ask you about is I was on the microphone at Sonoma Raceway uh, when Dale Jr. was in the car on yeah. CBS Sports, and he had that moment when he backed the car on the warm up into the wall. Uh, and the car caught on fire, and he got out of the car. What do you believe happened there? Dale always said he got pulled out of the car, and he yes. believes it was from up above. Yes. Yep. And and you know if if <laughs> if you don't believe in an afterlife, then you just say who knows what he was thinking. I can tell you that I I, I was. I was I wasn't in the pit box when that happened. I was with Gary Claudio and we were in a meeting and somebody came up and said there's a you know the Dale was a junior was out and there was a fire. I said oh well you know we'll get it taken care of the car will be fine. No 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 this is the car's on fire. I said really. No they said really on fire. So we got out we saw the smoke coming I thought oh my god what had happened here. You know and then uh obviously it was a yeah a flurry of fire trucks and crews and the first concern of course is he okay yeah he's out of the car i didn't see any of the video so he comes in they had him we took him up to medical uh and amazingly enough he had he he wasn't wearing uh any uh, uh fireproof underwear oh, all right wow. just wearing his regular underwear oh under wow there. i didn't know that and so he had he had burns where his crotch belt was and he had burns on his chin where the, the balaclava didn't 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 cover that was it so i'm thinking well that you know, we're really thankful i at this point in time i hadn't seen any of the video yeah but he said i go he he said i was knocked out in the car i says i i i i came to and somebody would pull me out of the car and the fire crew saying there you got out of the car by yourself he says no my dad he said my dad came to me and said get out of the car get him out of the car i mean he had had some kind of apparition yeah. while he was in there and, 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 and there was, he wasn't making it up. No, he was not making it up. And when you look at the video, which I've watched thousands of times, all right, he backed it in and got his bell rung. When you look at him in there, you can see his chin on his chest. When yeah. that car erupts into flames, he's out. Yeah. He's out. And then he, then you can kind of see him spur into action, and and when you look at the level of flame that was inside that car, the fact he got out of there at all—I mean, another five seconds—and we would have had a different outcome of that. I can assure you, it was a uh, wow, scary moment. Yeah, scary moment. Yeah, our CBS cameras caught all of that, and it's remarkable. Oh. I'm sure you can see it on YouTube if you look for it. Uh, an amazing moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is there a Corvette victory out of all of those 107? that stands out to you? Oh man. I mean, there's a couple, it would be hard to, people don't understand how emotional it is 
um, the sport. Um, you know, these are hardened guys running this thing, he men, you know, risk takers. You sit around and, and you're at a race, a 24 hour race that you've been up for probably 32 hours by the time it's over. And, and you've, you've left it all out on the field, baby. It's amazing how you can break down like a child. It was, um, it's emotional for me to talk about it right now. That first win at Lamar was just in, in, incredible just incredible it, in in the pit box there was not a, a dry eye it was i mean grown men in tears just open sobbing in tears um and then you follow that up 30 minutes later standing on that podium looking down at the sea of people while they're playing the national anthem oh, dude it's uh wow uh, those are things you you never ever ever forget that certainly that certainly is was huge uh, the overall victory at Daytona um, was, you know, equally as as uh, emotional. Yeah. Um, that, that those those two, I think, uh, pretty much come to mind. I mean, there've been so many different. Yeah. You know, winning it, winning at Lamar when we only had one car, when the other car got knocked out, and everybody pitched in, and our chances were zero of winning. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, I can I can pick out ten that that victories that whew, yeah okay it's, it's been a ride doug one final question for you as we wrap this conversation about corvette up um you've had some incredible wheelmen drive for you over the years and i know the c8 team is going to be just as solid what does it take to be or to qualify as a corvette factory driver well, initially you have to obviously have speed i mean you got to be quick Okay. But then you have to understand what endurance racing is about because it's different than single seater or, 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 or where you're the only guy in the car because you've got other driver in some cases, drivers that you're working with on a team. You've got your crew, you've got, uh, uh another car that's part of this team, all racing for one common goal. And that's to win for Corvette. Um, so you have to have a mental attitude. You have to have ego checked at the door. You have to become a team member, a team player. You've got to have all those skills in addition to being fast. And then as equally important, you've got to be ready to become kind of a quasi rock star amongst the Corvette following. All right. Our Corvette fans consider themselves to be part of the team and that's by design. All right. We started out with that. We wanted to bring our fans inside, bring them up close to what we do, make them feel as though they're part of something. And we've been very successful, I think, in doing that. So a driver has to have, like a jewel, has to have many different facets to him or her to be able to really fulfill what a Corvette driver needs to be. And I think if you look down the line of the guys we've had, whether it was Chris or Ron or Johnny or Andy, um, you know, the, our current lineup of guys, Yan and Oliver and Tommy, um, it's it's just a long list of, of guys who have really embraced what the spirit of Corvette is, not just gone in the car and driven fast. Well, I got my resume all put together. I got your email and I'll be sending one your way, okay? <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, you have a number of those boxes ticked, Ralph. Yeah, right. I, I, we just have to determine the fast part. Yeah, right, right. That's that's the one that's going to get me. Doug Feehan from Corvette Racing, thanks for joining us here today on the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. All the best with the brand new C8 C8R. Thank you, buddy. We really appreciate the opportunity and uh, looking forward to bringing in a whole bunch of new fans next year. Okay. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We look forward to seeing all of you out at the races.